This is Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois. The podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. And now here's your host, Navy SEAL founder of Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, Rob Dubois. A few months after 9-11, I was assigned to a mission in Uzbekistan. Ten SEALs from different teams around the country were selected to train the Uzbek Special Forces outside Tashkent. I was picked for three reasons, as an intelligence instructor, a tactics trainer, and as a Russian interpreter. We wanted a Russian speaker on our side to balance out the guys the Uzbeks, or maybe Moscow, would be sending in to facilitate this six-week mission. Uzbekistan was important because it borders Afghanistan to the north, and much of the Taliban's opium revenue depended on crossing the Amodarya River that divides the two countries. We'd help our hosts catch and stop the bad guys trying to fund their, quote, holy war with drug sales. But today's story is less about terrorism and more about a nice little guy, the cook on our base. I think his name was Hamid. I used to hang out with him and watch as he prepared the meals that fed his troops and, briefly, ours. The sanitary conditions were horrendous. No hot water, no soap, no refrigeration, and no clean storage for food. I'd see the butcher bring a side of beef, it would sit out in the sun for a day, and then Hamid would chop off pieces and put it through the grinder, which still had rancid bits of yesterday's meat hanging out the bottom. It worked for them, though. Our hosts were rugged dudes who had grown up with these conditions, and their constitutions were able to handle it. The American SEALs, not so much. Our guys started to get sick early on and would be down for a day or two at a time. Soon I was the only one who regularly went in to eat with the Uzbeks. The other guys went out and got boiled eggs or power bars. But my call sign was GOAT because I can eat anything. The camp commander was a mean little local colonel who had operated with the Spesnaz under the Soviets, and he called me up one day to ask about that. All in Russian, he said, your men are getting sick. I said, da. He said, do you think it's the cook? Because I can punish the cook. Now, keep in mind, I had just seen him punishing three of our officer students the day before. While they stood at rigid attention, he literally beat them, slapping them hard across the faces. The old-school Russian way is to punish somebody, anybody, and the guilty parties will see that and stop doing undesirable behavior. And this guy was old-school as they come. He was part of the original few hundred Muslim brigade of Spetsnaz who parachuted into Kabul, took down the palace, and killed the president and his wife in 1979 to start their version of Vietnam. I had to leap into action to save Hamid from an ass-whooping. He couldn't do anything about his kitchen conditions, but it didn't matter unless Americans were around. And putting on my best liaison officer hat, I tried to explain, with my terrible vocabulary for medical terms, it's not the cook. Of course I knew it was the cook. Of course it was Hamid. Of course it was the rancid meat with the flies on it. But there's nothing he could do about it. So I began explaining with my best limited vocabulary about biology and microorganisms and the fact that we were getting sick because the situation for our bodies growing up was different from his body to the people in his group. He was skeptical because, again, this guy is super old school. And we went round and round and round, and he kept wanting to punish the cook. Finally, I realized the way to get to this guy's heart is by using my best macho, my best masculine heart mannerisms. And I said, and I quote, American men are not strong like Uzbek men, and I hit my chest like Tarzan. And he lit up and said, oh, that's right. Now I get it. And it took all of that 
all of that dancing around and the two-step for me trying to save Hamid from the ass whooping. And finally, I realized where to reach this guy, where he connects, what he understands in his context, in his lexicon. I reached him as a macho guy. We'd call it toxic masculinity if we actually had the chance to describe what he was living in. But that guy got it all of a sudden. And this is why today's session is on heart. The task of Heal Your Heart is much more than touchy-feely, much more than feeling sweet and fluffy and nice and warm and fuzzy. It's much more than being super nice to people and never hurting anybody's feelings. Genuine heart is present in the greatest warriors. I know a leader that we'll talk about in future episodes, Brian Losey, retired admiral, who is the greatest leader I've ever worked with. And it was because of his heart that I would have followed him to hell if he asked me to go there for a mission. As I just read recently in a great book, by Jason Redman, he said his leader, he would drive a nitroglycerin truck to the gates of hell if his commander asked for it. Because leadership is giving a damn about your human beings. Leadership is giving a damn about your family. And it's about giving a damn about yourself. That's the segue for today, which is extremely powerful show because we have two guests, two authors. I'm holding in my hand the book Good Comes First by Chris Edmonds and Mark Babbitt. And Good Comes First is all about heart-driven leadership, the courage, the commitment. As you see in my story about Hamid, I had to not only give a damn about Hamid to keep him from getting an ass beating, I had to also focus on how to reach the person I was dealing with. I had to have the courage to confront the issue and stand in the gap and keep this nice little guy. He, was, he wasn't even a GI. He was just a little Uzbek guy who was going to get his ass kicked. And I didn't want that to happen because I cared. So speaking of caring and speaking of leadership and speaking of good comes first, Chris and Mark, welcome aboard. Rob, we're so excited to be a part of this. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, Rob. I know you guys have been on a whirlwind tour promoting good comes first, even as we're taping this one. Uh, you probably have like three minutes to yourselves each day. And I think it's probably a, a one, if it's, if my experience is anything, it's a, it's a labor of love, isn't it? Just going out and preaching, communicating the mission, sharing the ideas that are so important in this next level of leadership. I mean, Stephen Covey started the ideas with Circle of Concern, Circle of Influence. He really, uh, I was, I'm a devotee for probably 25 years now. And, and so much of what he talked about is character. You're talking about character also. Can you please let the audience know what you're talking about in Good Comes First. Give a quick snapshot. Well, Rob, I'll 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 jump in first. I when we had the this this grand idea for Good Comes First, it was built upon the fact that we must lead differently. And and keep in mind now, this is pre-pandemic when when Chris and I first started talking about this. And as a matter of fact, we had a whole uh, the whole manuscript basically done when the when the before the pandemic even really um, hit us and and we knew that we couldn't keep leading in that industrial age you're just lucky to have a job i'm paying you do good work mentality we actually had to start caring about people and our challenge was well how do we how do we convince that you you told the story about toxic masculinity well let's face it the boardrooms the C-suite is, in a lot of cases, full of toxic masculinity. So we couldn't, we couldn't go to 
especially our fellow old white guys, and go, you have to start being nice. Because they're not going to listen to that, right? That that's a that's a non-starter, right? And and so we had to come up with a way to entice, inspire old school leaders to look at leadership differently without going all kumbaya on them. And so so that's the goal of Good Comes First is in in our foundational principle, we say it right away in the book is Leaders must equally value respect and results. You can't just, if you're doing, Chris says this much better than I do, but if you're only focused on results, you're doing exactly half of your job. And in this environment, we must care enough about our people to show them the respect they've earned and they deserve. Let me, if I can add to that, one of the key pieces that we were exploring way back three years ago in 2018 was kind of leveraging the disconnect of old school leadership thinking and old school leadership practices, maybe even beliefs, was that you've got younger generations that are going to be coming into the workforce. And I uh, I think we saw a study about a year ago that indicated that in 2030, 66% of the population will be Gen Z, Gen Ys, and that some of those Gen Ys will be joining the leadership ranks. Well, they're wired different. They think different. They're Boy, talk about you know relating to the story of you know Americans growing up different than Uzbeks growing up, and and these younger generations have very different expectations of of their lives and their workplace. So the idea of good comes first really took on a a piece of how do we help leaders realize that their best bosses respected them. And they were immensely productive when they felt validated and respected. Hmm. So let's, let's kind of get that idea out and embraced. So the idea of good comes first is that employees of all generations are treated with respect and validation for their ideas, efforts, and contributions every day. Now that that's an interesting, it's a long bumper sticker. You'd have to have a really big car to get that on your bumper. But to have leaders appreciate that the old mindset, the old practices, the old approaches are not going to work. Well, then the pandemic struck us all. And boy, have every business on the planet's been impacted by it. I would bet every leader, every employee across the globe has been impacted by it. And so there is a wonderful window today to have leaders realize that if the only thing that they're focused upon is results then you're going to leave money on the table. You're going to leave hearts on the table. You're going to leave motivation on the table. So that's that's the premise that we wanted to create a an educational experience. We're, we know we're teaching leaders to do things differently. So to some extent, we have to kind of chalk them a bit with the reality. And I, I, I hope we do that well. We really have um, prided ourselves on looking at this is data that's undeniable. And when you have 33% you know, engagement across U.S. Work, workplaces for 30 straight years, and how many billions have been spent? So engagement hasn't moved because our leadership thinking hasn't moved. And, and it's not about the brain. You've got to start with having people care authentically about the impact they're having and about the experience that people have. Now, again, I'm from L.A. I got the California vibe, I know, right? But we all have experienced this all too rarely, 
from, from the bosses we really loved and, and we really were immensely committed to. And drive, driving the nitro truck into hell, that's, I'm with you. I, I, I've got some bosses that immediately sprang to mind with that because we all would have done that. So that's, that's kind of the idea. We really took it from a generational application to everybody deserves this. It doesn't matter how old you are. You know, Jack Welch talks about a guy he retired and gave his gold watch to at GE. And the fellow had 50 years. And he was a valued employee, to use old school terms. You're a valued employee. We appreciate you. You're a great American. You know, all the <clears throat> tripe that we throw at people that I've had thrown at me, I wish I could monetize it. Even a nickel for every bullshit thing I was told about how awesome I am. <laughs> I would be, I wouldn't have to work. I'd just be living on an island somewhere. I'd buy Richard Branson's island if I had a nickel for every one of those things I've heard. <laughs> he said, he spoke to this fella, John Smith, and, you know, John, you're a valued employee. We really appreciate all your hard work over these 50 years. Do you have any words to share, words of wisdom? And John said, you've had my hands for 50 years. You could have had my mind for free. That is chills for me that to hear that person as i've expressed to many of my own bosses dude you're not getting my best invest in me it'll pour out of me your mission will be accomplished that's what a, a great leader understands it's about pulling the best out of people i had guys in my platoons i can think we'll call them timmy and tommy i won't use real real names withheld but hmm. one fellow was our corpsman and this guy was like don't touch me get away from me i got this and he was competent he could do it we could get ready for a big mission and say, okay, we got this thing going on in a, next week. I need you to get a medical plan together. Talking about every spider that might bite us, every quicksandy thing, every hypothermia, every bug in the microbe in the, in, the org, in the environment we're going into. He'd take off for three days and come back with an encyclopedic med plan. We'll call him Timmy. Tommy was a very linear, direct, let's be engaged. How do I do this? What do you want? And I would send him into the, the mill van to go count loose ammo. Hey, we need to know how much five, uh, nine millimeter we have for our MP5s. And he'd say, got it, boss. And if you checked in on him every two hours, he'd be thrilled. If I did to Timmy what I did to Tommy, they would both be miserable. Tommy in the, in the mill van would, would, be, would probably starve to death in three days' time. Uh, and Timmy, on the other hand, if you checked in every two hours, would probably kill me. Uh, don't be yeah. micromanaging me. I got this. Understanding who your people are is what I mentioned when I talk about Brian Losey. Uh, Brian, when I first met him, he was at that same SEAL team in Pearl Harbor, and he came aboard as my fourth of, of four commanders over the seven years I was there, and he met everybody, 300 people, 100 of us were SEALs, all wearing blue t-shirts and black shorts, and he met everybody in a few days' mm -hmm. time, and we all looked the same, to be very simple. We all look pretty much the same, black shorts, blue t-shirt, and boots. But about two weeks later, I saw him outside of his office, and he said, hey, Rob, how's it going? And I was blown away. I thought, this guy, how does, how does he remember my name? He met 300 people that looked like me two weeks ago. Uh, and I thought, this must be one of those officer things, because I was always a skeptical enlisted man. Uh, those officers, there's officer tricks. They're, they're trying to put something over on me. He had some book, you know, Dale Carnegie tricks on how to remember a dude's name. Rob's bald. He's got a mustache, because I had a really cool porn stash at the time. 
And so I figured that was one of those little officer tricks. And I said, still, it was impressive. You know, well done, Commander. I said, good, Captain. How are you doing today? And he said, I'm well. And how's Cindy, my former wife? And when I heard that, it was like I got a two-by-four in the soul, like hit a strike on my whole soul. And that's when I realized this guy gives a shit about me. This guy gives a shit about me. Yeah. That's caring. That's love. It may be guys with big muscles and tattoos, but love is a human experience. And when we love another person, you know, they say that there's no greater love than laying down your life for another. Well, that's something all of us cool guy warriors can get behind. Yeah, cool. Sacrifice your life for your buddy. That's what love is. It's not about um, the this this experience of fluffy feelings like, oh, I love you so much. That's that that wears off in a marriage. But but love is always there. And love is what leadership is based on. That's what you guys are talking about. Absolutely. Well, and. And I'd love to hear from Mark on on his perspective on this. But our one one of our mentors, uh, another woman who happens to to live in in the state of Colorado, we interviewed her early on, and uh, and one of the things she said is is leaders have to love their people first, and then everybody can rally around the vision or the opportunity, and and that was pretty bold. You know, th- even three years ago, as you're starting to look at, you know, what's what's the makeup of the employee population and, and are they inspired by the mentors that taught me 30 years ago, you know, be bold, don't be kind, don't praise anybody, use the whip, you know, and um, it's 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 an it's an interesting term uh, about trying to apply love in, in the workplace. And it certainly fits. Mark. Well, I I. My my challenge when Chris and I started writing this, and and also when we work with leaders, is when you use the word love, people shut down, and and that's yes. Maybe it's just a you know a a longer branch of the toxic masculinity thing, and and we we were struggling with that when we were first writing the manuscript, and we were working with this wonderful gentleman, Mark Levy, and he said every time I talk to you guys. I, and he would go to our backgrounds, and Chris was with the YMCA and, and mentored young people for forever, and respect was was a huge issue for him and always has been. It certainly has been since I've known Chris. And and I, I've been a baseball coach for 35 years and was in law enforcement, and I, like you, served our country. And and the word respect kept coming up. He goes, you guys are tiptoeing around this. You're really talking, both of you. <laughs> are talking about respect. You just don't want to like, you don't want to latch onto that for some reason. Why not? And we were honest. We said, we're not sure that the old white guys, the, the, you know, the, the guys carrying the whips on their belts, we're not sure they're going to relate to that. And he, <laughs> and he's a tough crap. It doesn't matter if the, it, it, right, right to 2% of the population, not to 98% of the population and, and embrace this concept of respect as love. And, and just freaking own it. And we kind of got scolded and went, okay, yes, sir. And, and so once we adapted to the idea that it was okay to care enough about somebody you work with to show them the respect they've earned, because you can't respect somebody you don't care about. It does not happen, right? So I, you hear all the time, well, I don't, I don't like him, but I respect him. Bull, that, that in, especially in the workplace, if I don't like somebody, I'm going to find a reason not to respect that person. And that's, yes. I mean, 
We've had enough toxic in, uh, work cultures for decades in the industrial age to know that's the case. We know that that line, that whole, oh, I don't, I don't like him, but I respect him thing is absolute crap. And it floats down. Even if, even if the VP doesn't genuinely care for and respect the work and the life and the, and the values, the CEO models, even at the VP level, everybody under that VP is going to mirror that perception that they're going to know that VP does not respect that person. That the, They don't care about that person. They, they care about the work, but they don't care about the person. And that all floats down and it just feeds the negativity that eventually becomes a toxic work culture. You talk about that in the book. Page 23 <clears throat> is all about the mirroring. People will emulate just like a child learns, you know, we can do as I say, not as I do. Don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. 18 years later, Timmy's a smoker. Um, if a leader consistently displays desirable behaviors, employees will emulate those traits. Over time, the demonstration of those positive behaviors will reinforce the desired company culture. On the other hand, the undesirable behaviors demonstrated by a leader, perhaps unknowingly, mm -hmm. especially those that contradict stated corporate values, don't smoke, tacitly permit others to act in the same culture-killing manner. That is such an obvious dynamic, and why the hell don't we get it? This is, I mean, you guys are definitely going to be uh, shaking up some, uh, what, what's the, 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 the sacred cows yeah. going to be oh, yeah. in this conversation. We think so, and and, and one of the things that, that inspired us both during that time frame was trying to help leaders realize that the impact they have may not be the impact they think they have. And that the only way you can really know the impact is you have to ask, well, many leaders aren't good about one-on-one -on -one conversations, much less like the commander you had. Um, I, I remember a leader who uh, was an older gentleman, founder of the company, the company had been around for about 30 years and went in to do presentation to their executive team and a keynote to the whole company, which was really kind of fun. But it was a keynote, right? It was a one-shot injection of some sanity, maybe. But the culture was operating, right? And it may not be able to kind of accept some of these different ways of imagining how to how to run an operation. And I got feedback on the interviews I did in advance. And they said, Mr. Smith, the founder, used to walk into the building every morning and greet everybody and say hello and engage with how's the family you know, how's your daughter recital go, you know, th th this personal connection. And here 20 years later, he comes in, he looks down at the floor, he walks straight to the elevator, goes up to the ninth floor, engages with nobody. So I had a few moments before we started the, you know, executive meeting debrief. And I said, tell me about that. And he said, I'm embarrassed. And I said, what are you embarrassed for? He says, I don't know everybody's name. So his viewpoint of, well, since I don't know everybody, I don't want to be stupid, right? No, no, no. Being stupid would be fine. Say, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name. Tell me where you work and tell me what you do. And it's like, if you do that with five people a day, now who knows if he did that? But it was an interesting perception because he didn't intend people to think he wasn't paying attention. He didn't respect them. He didn't care for them. He was embarrassed. It's like, it doesn't matter what you feel. What matters is how people interpret their interactions with you. And that's, that's an interesting piece. And if, if we have leaders 
who see others behaving badly and don't like confrontation, they may not engage in that crucial conversation. They may say, um, our VP of HR needs to go solve that immediately. It's like, no, 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 you're the one. You're the one. You have to step up and have this conversation and follow through. And that's that's very different. And it's it's scary. It's It's wrought with mistakes. And it's like, if I don't make three or four mistakes a day, I'm playing it way too safe. So if other leaders can be willing to, to kind of be honest and say, I've forgotten your name. Tell me, tell me what you do. That can be a huge, huge leap forward. It connects with the human being to begin with. If nothing else, that person-to-person contact is going to make an impression that is positive on that individual and on those who observe it. Nobody's going to fault a human being for having forgotten a name. It's like, that's the most human thing you can have. And it's good to re-level the playing field. You want to have a sense of authority, perceived, of course, uh, positional authority is important to maintain for organization and order. But at the same time, let that person understand you're a human being. You mentioned, um, that's a perfect reference, that whole segue there of people feeling not valued. From the book, at one point, there was a thing that jumped out at me is that more than 50% in one interview or one survey, in every case across three categories, employees didn't feel valued by their company, 50, more than 50%. Employees didn't feel valued by their manager, more than 50%. And employees didn't feel a sense of belonging at work, more than 50%. What are, those are very clear numbers. It's very easy, objectively, we can say it's 53% here and 52.9% on yeah. there. There are also very real numbers you're getting in terms of the results from changing the culture, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the one of the pieces that's so critical, again, because leaders have not been taught to change a culture. So whatever the culture is, they kind of okay, so this is what it is. And and if we can get everything delivered we're supposed to today, then that's my job. I don't have to do anything else. And again, that's half your job. The other half is is managing respect. And this proof, because we're asking people, culture change is a not quick band-aid, quick fix style of approach. It is a 12-month, 18-month, maybe for the rest of your life commitment, because that consistency is so vital. And so what we found in the first 10 years of doing proactive culture leadership with executive teams is within 12 to 18 months, clients typically saw growth in employee engagement by 40% or more. And leaders go, yeah, that would look good on our annual report. You know, that's, that's okay. (laughs) And the second gain is, that customer service rankings go up by 40% or more. Now they're going, oh, well, we measure that. So having our customers be happier, man, that's really important. Well, when you have engaged employees, they treat customers better. They solve problems proactively. They build that relationship, which not surprisingly leads to the third powerful uh, piece of data, which is that results and profits go up 35% or more. Now, as we describe these three benefits, the senior leaders go, what was that about results again? Tell me, tell me about the money. And so we've, we've had to be bold to say, this works, but it's hard. And you're going to have to completely rethink your habits because your habits may suck. 
and they may not be reinforcing and validating. They may be demeaning and discounting. So if you want to create this, the engagement comes first. And engagement only comes with respect. So if you're demonstrating respect, engagement grows, people care about customers more, and the company's success more, which leads to outcomes that are desirable. It's a reverse process. You got to tug the executives into this discussion by saying, how would you like a one-third increase? Ooh, we'd love a one-third increase. How do we get there? Well, what you got to do is you got to get better customer service experience. Okay, we can develop that. How do we get that? You got to care about your damn people. <laughs> oh, that's hard. Let's go back to point one. Do you want 35% yeah, yeah. increases? Yes. Okay, <laughs> let's do the hard yeah. thing. Learn to care. Well, and I'll, if you don't mind me jumping on that, I'll, I'll say it's not just, it's not, uh, Chris and I have just been astounded at the, at the, at the response to the book in the middle of what's being called the great recession. And, and people have said, well, how are we supposed to execute our, our recovery plan, our business plan, if we can't get enough people and, and valid, valid concern, right? We, we, we must, I mean, one of the ways we invest in our company is to get and keep good people. Well, Similar to what's happened, and Chris has already mentioned this, we've literally spent over 28, 30 years, billions of dollars on this on this idea of, um, well, we must improve employee engagement because then we'll improve productivity and then we'll improve profits. Well, go back to that first need to improve. How can you ask employees to be better engaged if your company culture genuinely sucks? Like it is miserable to work here. And now you have delegated to me the CHRO or VP of customer service or whatever. You, you've mandated that I help people become more engaged and you want numbers to prove they're more engaged. Well, in order for that to happen, we got to take a step back. We got to make this a place that, that does validate contributions, that focuses more on personal and professional growth, where leaders really do care. We want people, we need people to walk in the door knowing their work matters. And if they don't know that, they're never going to be engaged. So you can buy all the software systems you want. You can buy all the management training you want. You can learn how to manipulate fellow human beings all you want. And if your company culture still sucks, that's all it is, is manipulation. Because you haven't fixed the root cause problem. And once you do fix that, well, now those people who were unhappy... Great recession? No, there's not a res there's not a labor shortage. There's a respect shortage, and the companies that treat their employees with respect, they have lines out the door, people wanting people wanting to come work for that company, right now. Even in hospitality, and and education and nursing, the good companies, the good leaders are attracting good people, and and the leaders who were stuck in the 1970 industrial age, you're just lucky to have a job. Do, do what I'm paying you to do. Don't complain. Don't bitch. Well, people are leaving those companies in droves. And yeah, you have a labor shortage. Your competitor does not because they've already learned this lesson. And, and they are retaining people. They're hiring better people. And the people who work for them are employing their friends and relatives and colleagues that might be already be considering leaving. So it all comes back. Respect equals results, period. End of story. The data is clear. 
Now we just got to get leaders to don't don't try to manipulate engagement. Don't try and manipulate retention rates. Don't go refer back to training to improve customer service. No root cause of all those things, a toxic company culture. Respect is a huge part of the impact concepts we, we teach at Impact Actual. Respect equals results in business and in family and in friendship and in marriage and in parenting and uh, in interactions with strangers and in everything you ever touch <laughs> with a human being on the other side of the conversation, respect is key. They say that the greatest leaders express respect for the adversary. They say that Richard Lionheart and Saladin met at, uh, in, in certain parlays, and they respected, respectfully treated each mm -hmm. other. There's a big difference between feeling respect, just like love. Yeah. Stephen Covey said love is a verb. It doesn't mean you feel loving for your partner. It means you act, mm -hmm. you, you express love. Respect is the same thing. I choose to behave respectfully toward others. And in impact, we talk about you know, express with respect because that is where people will respond most effectively, including at Abu Ghraib prison. We'll talk about this later in another episode. We have enough sacred cows to tip today. <laughs> but in another episode, I'll talk about my Abu Ghraib prison when I was talking to a, a young guard there looking over the 6,000 detainees. And I said, I was a big, tough Navy SEAL, my green uniform, my big Navy SEAL trident on my chest, my M4 rifle over my shoulder. And I said, how do you deal with all these scumbags? Because I was full of myself, full of ego. And he said, I just treat them all with respect. And I said, oh, okay, that was disruptive. My mind, my ego, my, my, I started to deflate a little bit. And I said, what do you mean? He said, a lot of these guys are innocent. We don't know. It takes, this was like 2004, mm -hmm. I suppose. He said, it takes six months to vet an innocent man. A lot of them are detained. They're rolled up because of lies told by their business competitors. If there's two barbers on one block and business is poor, one will say, that guy's a financier. That guy enables IEDs in place. He's a, he, he, he's a, he's a terrorist or insurgent. <clears throat> Scratch that. <laughs> and uh, I said, wow, holy crap. He said, yeah, their wives are at home with five babies and no way to make a living. Some of them have to go to work on their backs. Still chokes me up to think about that. I was so full of myself. I was so proud of good guys, bad guys, white hats, black hats, scumbags behind that part of the wire, good guys on this part of the wire. And that guy put me in my place. Hmm. He said, even the bad guys, even the real bad guys, he, he pointed at a dude and he said, I know that guy killed two of my friends the other day because my other friend saw it happen. I treat him with respect. He's a hard, hard case. None of the other guards can get him to go to hygiene or meals, but I treat him with respect. I say, Muhammad, can you please come this way, sir? And he does because he expects respect and he responds to it. So the entire spectrum of interaction with human beings from the softest to the hardest is based on that one word you guys are trying to convey, which is a form of love. And I think it's the first, we love ourselves and we respect ourselves first to choose that behavior as a regular matter of course. Now, speaking of old school, <laughs> you talk about three and a half leaders in this book. You talk about the old school leader. Uh, we, we see old school leaders as get shit done people, to quote the book. You say there's a new school. They're about getting, uh, trying to be the good guy. And there's the middle school 
which are the oh shit it's not done people. Now, let's get controversial. I, I'm, I'm glad we're saving this for the end because we can't go too far off track and drive all the listeners away, especially the old white guys. Come on, old white guys, pay attention. Trigger warning. Uh, there's two old white guys lecturing me, another old white guy, about this. So if you can hold on for five more minutes, you can hear some valuable things. A fourth leadership style, boomer male syndrome. We realize we risk alienating a segment of people who we want to enlighten with this book. However, the risk of over, is overshadowed by the rewards that will undoubtedly come by starting this tough conversation. And it is a tough conversation. And let me be very, very clear from my perspective. When I talk about toxic masculinity, and when I talk about old white guys, when I talk about what, what we're talking about here, boomer male syndrome, this is not old white guy bashing. This is saying, listen, there is a dynamic in place in our society. That's what we're talking about. The, look at the system. Look at all the people who aren't old white guys and the old white guys and understand how do we all in any camp, either camp, want to make stuff. What Do we want to get shit done better? We want to be functional. Can you please tell me in a productive way <laughs> about, about what you mean by this, by your version of toxic? To be clear, I want to very, very clearly specify. When I speak of toxic masculinity, I see a lot of people, memes, tiles pop up on social media. They're like, oh, males are bad. Masculinity is bad. That's bullshit. That is not what anybody who is responsibly discussing the topic is talking about. We're talking about the silent guy who won't express his feelings and, and puts his wife, freezes her out, puts her at arm length, won't be in a relationship with her. We're talking about the guy that is abusive at work, get shit done. The guy with the whip on his belt who's like trying to drive his employees to higher productivity when actually drives it down. Toxic masculinity, just like toxic water, is a subset of water or masculinity. Masculinity is fine. Masculinity is grand. I have to be a damn proud of my masculinity. I believe we are, we, we sacrifice. I believe we stand in the gap. I believe as a, as a seal, as a warrior, it is the best thing I can be as a, as a fully masculine, which includes nurturing. It includes respect. It includes kindness. It includes softness with one's partner or somebody in need. Now, that said, gentlemen, <laughs> take it away. Well, I think you've covered everything for us. You just, you, I mean, you could have written the book for us just based on what you just said. Here, <laughs> here's our reality. We, we seem to think that caring and masculinity are mutually exclusive. And, and we know better. We've, we've seen the leaders, both the older white guys that might be suffering from boomer male syndrome, which is, we can quickly characterize as autocratic, command and control, my way or the highway, I'm decisive, I'm bold, I'm always right. And when it comes time to replace me, I'm going to promote people who look, think, talk, and act just like me. So the, the cycle of this toxic masculinity, to use your phrase, it, it's just, it just renews and it renews and it renews. And people of color, women, are completely pushed aside because, I, because you don't look like me. You don't act like me. Now, does that mean that people of color, women... Um, people with different different preferences and religions can't also suffer from boomer male syndrome? No, quite the opposite, because that's how they've been trained. And and when we were writing the book, Chris and I actually had a, a woman in her 40s. She's a black woman, a very strong leader, incredibly confident human being. And at one point, she had to sit in the boardroom where she had um, participated in, in discussions for years and finally decided to, to draw the line and go, no, this is not okay. 
you guys have literally turned me into an old white guy over the last five, 10 years. And in this conversation, I'm not going to be that. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to say what you want me to say. I'm not going to participate the way you want me to participate. I feel strongly about this. I'm not going to be that guy. So clearly you don't have to be an older white male to suffer from boomer male syndrome because we've trained our leaders. That's exactly how they're supposed to act in order to get promoted and to become leaders themselves. Right. So, and Chris and I, one of the fun things about doing this book, Chris and I got to talk to many female leaders and and people of color and they all sat back. and, And when we described boomer male syndrome as a label, as you know, perhaps it might be taken the wrong way. We might be alienating people. They went, no, I get it. Cause I go in and out. I go, I go from being me and being vulnerable and being human to there are moments where I can go, Oh my God, I just sounded like my father. I just sounded like my old boss. I just sounded like my college professor. I just slipped into boomer male syndrome. Thankfully they can pull themselves back and, and the vulnerability comes back and the respect starts to be shown better. And and, and now we're having a one-on-one, mutually beneficial human conversation that is far more productive than the autocratic command and control, do what I say, I'm always right, that, 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 that has been the hallmark of industrial age leadership since, what, the 1950s? It's, it's fascinating to, to engage in these conversations because we're really challenging the identity of many leaders and, and what what we have to do and what we've tried to do in the book is to educate to simply say if this was still working for everybody then we wouldn't be seeing engagement stalled at 35 percent. we wouldn't see production stalled and and we wouldn't see people leaving jobs at to the tune of four and a half million a month since april we are in december here in the u.s um, that have voluntarily quit their jobs. 30 million have voluntarily quit. That They're not quitting bosses they love. They're quitting colleagues that are toxic, cultures that are toxic, bosses that are toxic. So it doesn't work. It didn't work very well in the first place, but at least um, I think potentially the shift in business that the pandemic has caused an incredibly damaging impact, which we're going to be dealing with, I think, for decades to come from a health standpoint, but from from a society standpoint as well. We've got to be able to invite people, smart people of different sizes, shapes, colors, and, and genders to figure out how they can commit to an organization that's doing good. And, and you, can, you can be selling cars and doing good. You can be, we, we are so proud of our relationship with Gary Ridge at WD-40. He says, we sell a water dispersal gunk and we have a tribe that has 93% engagement every single uh, engagement survey we do. And it's been that way for 20 years. And it's like people are lined up to sign up for companies like that. And, and, and by the way, Gary Ridge, old white guy, right? Um, <laughs> Robert Burson exactly. at Radio Flyer, old white guy, right? I mean, they're, it, they're we it. talk a lot about this systemic problem with leadership and this autocratic style that, you know, you see it in Wall Street uh, over the last um, several years. We saw it in Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, Hollywood Hills, Harvey Weinstein and all that, Silicon Valley with the, with, the, with the bro culture, right? 
almost every major social justice reform over the last 20 years, the root cause is boomer male syndrome, is, is those people across the board that just won't let others in. And, and if, if we just took that away, and if we just showed everybody, regardless of their skin color or their gender or their preferences or their religions, if you showed everybody the respect they had earned in the workplace and not made those assumptions, perhaps like you did, and I've been there too, I, I related, to your story, related to your story very well about looking over the wall and going, you know, scumbags, right? We're making those assumptions that are a byproduct of our ego, and ego is the root cause of toxic masculinity. And all we're asking people to do is go, that's a human being sitting across from you, and they have goals, and they have dreams, and they have kids, and they have spouses, and they have pets they love, and they're a human being just like you do, just like you are, even if they're not like you. And, and that's what we're trying. That's why we started with equally value, respect, and results, because you can't have one without the other. You can't, if you focus exclusively on results, you're probably suffering from boomerang syndrome. If you focus, by the way, exclusively on respect or um, loving too much, caring too much, then you're not getting enough work done. And that's not sustainable. It's not viable. Business must drive results. All we're saying is you can do both at the same time. You can increase the respect in your workplace, and that in turn will drive up results. I'm going to say it one last time during this episode. Please don't panic if it sounds like we're bashing old white guys. We are old white guys. This discussion is about the system. This is discussion is about certain preconceived ideas within the dynamic, within the system of people who are old and not old, people who are white and not white, people who are guys and are not guys. We have established over some, well, over history, how to do work. And we've evolved out of the agricultural uh, age, industrial age, into the information knowledge age. Covey probably was one of the first standard bearers of saying, of identifying and clarifying what that is 30 years ago. <clears throat> but this is about saying, just consider whatever camp you may be, whatever designation you have, uh, each person should examine this for themselves and say, what is working and what could work better? That's the question I think is to be raised here. Uh, I, I wish we could go deeper and deeper and deeper. I wish we had another two hours for this episode. We have other episodes coming up, I suspect. We'll be talking about this stuff again in the future as it, as it evolves as you get more traction and as, as more results come back, more hard metrics to look at and say, this is real. Taking us out, Mark, what would you like to leave the listener with as far as your, your foot stomp, if you will, in the team lexicon? We talk about a foot stomp. Don't forget this, you idiots. What do you want the audience to remember when we're, when we're, uh, when we're ending this episode? And how do they get a hold of you and stay in contact? I want people to connect with you right now right now during before you turn off this podcast <laughs> connect with mark babbitt how does that happen and why well uh, i'm on uh, facebook quite a bit twitter quite a bit um chris and i both still answer our own emails and and our own uh, uh, tweets and and mentions and so we're we're highly engaged on social media and of course you can always go to goodcomesfirst.com for more information about us and the book so um i'll lead with that i you know, we're asked this question a lot, and I and it's always funny because I always seem to come up with a different thing based on the tenor of the conversation. And and um, 
in in this case, what I, what comes to mind right now is leadership legacy, and we talk about this in chapter twelve. We talk. It used to be Jack Welch is a prime example, a guy who had who was known for being an incredible leader, and and died with more regrets than he could count, because he didn't. All he cared about was results. All and and. And again, we're still quoting him today. We're still living his legacy today because of all the good things he did. And to him, it wasn't good enough. And so if, if, even if our readers crack open chapter 12 and they look at what am I leaving behind? How did I make the world, my community, my company a better place than I found it? That's what we're all about today. And you can't leave that positive, long-lasting, um, mentor-based uh, uh, legacy if all you care about is results. Chris Edmonds, how about you? Well, Mark's done a great job of telling you all where you can find us. Again, goodcomesfirst.com is where we're living mostly. One of the biggest steps that I want to have leaders consider is that if you're managing performance, that means you have clear expectations set out and then you're holding people accountable for those. Now, accountability may be great on some days and not so great on other days, but that's kind of the basic operating, you know, kind of values of most of our old school leaders. And so what we want to do is say, good, keep doing that, increase accountability, but let's look at observable, tangible, measurable definitions of the values you want people to live, of the respect that you want demonstrated. And leaders will go, I know how to measure productivity. I can see that. We've got dashboards for that. Well, do you have dashboards for respect? Well, you can't do that. Yes, you can. If we begin to identify behaviors that are aligned to kind of us at our best, and one, we have so many clients over the years that have raised up an integrity value, that this is an aspirational value. They want to have people behave with integrity more. So good. What do you mean by that? Huh? Well, let's go ask 20 people what integrity means. Well, we get 30 different answers. So it's like as senior leaders, you have to tell them what you mean. And so one of the things we coach is if integrity is a value, even if respect is a value, maybe a behavior like I do what I say I will do becomes a high bar. And it's not we do, because if I don't feel like doing it, I can trust everybody else. No, it's me. It's me, I. It means I must act, I must express. And something like that becomes a metric that you can measure. You can have a formal value survey for every leader that has formal leadership responsibility, get feedback on your 12 or 15 valued behaviors. And that all of a sudden becomes a bit more of a well-rounded snapshot of the leader's actual impact. So it's outlined in the book. And again, this is why this takes a while because you can decide what behaviors you want in a day, but it's going to take you six months to live them and have them build credibility. And then you begin to measure them. Now we're getting somewhere. I love that idea of a respect dashboard. We do want to see dashboards. This is the age of dashboards. Build me something cool that I can click little virtual buttons on. It's actually 
it feeds the primal soul with the way we're designed as human beings. I want to click things. And it's like, that's why we have, what do you call them? Fidgets. The children today <laughs> have right. fidgets, a little thing. You you spin a thing or you click a thing and it's just action. We adults are just expanded children and we want to click little things too and make the, <laughs> make the numbers change, make the colors yeah. change. And a respect dashboard, an integrity dashboard is a powerful, powerful concept. And it does clearly identify that we have objective potentiality here. We can do things. It's not just a subjective, feels nice, hope we're on the right track kind of thing. You can measure these things. Absolutely. Guys, this is powerful stuff. You are literally paving the way for a new Covey age as far as understanding the next level of things, of how his character instruction leads into real palpable business change, leadership change. And of course, ultimately, each one of us is a leader of ourselves. We have to be that person in our, that's why I say, assume command. Absolutely. Uh, body, mind, heart, and soul. Focus on the self. Lead the self first and others will follow if it's a worthy cause, a worthy example. Remember, everybody who's listening, go over to goodcomesfirst.com as the single point of success to connect with Mark and Chris. And gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on and illuminating this. Rob, what a delight. I so love the service that you've offered over the years and the stories you bring because you're trying to bring powerful peace through Impact Actual. And this is vitally important for the leaders that we need to begin behaving differently. Rob, I just want to say how grateful we are that you feel in any way our work is aligned with yours because the work you're doing the difference you're making is real. So we thank you for that. I appreciate that so much, gentlemen. We're not just a big congratulations fest here. We're t- <laughs> the reason we're excited about these things is because they are tangible societal improvement, not just change. Change can be bad too. We're talking about improving, making the system better, making every individual in the system have a better opportunity and therefore make the system better again, the virtuous cycle. Everybody on the air here, have a groovy week, and we'll see you with the next episode. And thank you all for being makers of change, makers of impact, and makers of good lives. Thanks for joining us on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois, the podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. For more information about Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, visit impactactual.com. And be sure to subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever you like to listen so you'll never miss a show. We'll see you next time on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois.